Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting February 19, 2016, we talk with Washington-based science and environmental journalist Richard Blaustein about a massive nuclear physics project that is uniting, not dividing, the Mideast. His report in the winter issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, Open Sesame, a powerful light attracts Middle Eastern scientists. We'll also point out other top features in the new WPJ winter issue, Latin America on life support. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. With a ceasefire looming in Syria, critics have asked just how effective it will be since it does not include the Islamic State or Nusra Front, both of which are regarded by the United States as terror groups. President Obama did not address that at a news conference Tuesday. He spent much time, however, taking on critics who say that Russian President Vladimir Putin is outmaneuvering him in Syria. Russia has been propping up Assad this entire time. The fact that Putin finally had to send his own troops and his own aircraft and his invest this massive military operation was not a testament to great strength. It was a testament to the weakness of Assad's position. Obama continues to say that Russia is getting drawn into an expensive quagmire in Syria, one that it can ill afford given the state of the Russian economy. The president spoke at the end of a summit with 10 leaders from Southeast Asia. He'll visit one of them, Vietnam, in May. One big focus of that summit concerned containing China, which has disagreements with Vietnam and others about just who has sovereignty over the South China Sea. Beijing claims that it does. The U.S. disagrees, and to show its displeasure, Washington has been flexing its muscles in the region, an explicit warning to China. Meantime, the Pentagon says that China has been flexing its muscles too, positioning surface-to-air missiles on one disputed island. And what might have happened if Iran had not agreed to scale back its nuclear program and a military clash ensued? The Obama administration had plans for an overwhelming cyber attack on Iran's air defenses, communication systems, and power grid. The operation, codenamed Nitro Zeus, was tabled after the nuclear deal struck between Iran and six other nations last summer. That information first reported in the New York Times. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Uh, where is Sesame? Sesame is um, located in, in, in an interesting part of the world. As you can see, it's uh, in, the, uh, in the north uh, of Jordan. Uh, close to the border of, uh, uh, with Syria, close to the, uh, to the Palestinian Authority, Israel. 
and uh, not far away from the border to uh, Iraq. Uh, the story is science uh, as a way of helping uh, people to uh, communicate and uh, to uh, dialogue between uh, different cultures and different ideas and uh, different uh, political systems. Giorgio Paolucci, Scientific Director of Sesame, Synchrotron Light for Experimental Science and Applications in the Middle East, at a conference in Rabat, Morocco last summer. Even as doubts about the controversial deal to limit Iran's nuclear program continue to divide the region and a wider world, the Jordan-based Sesame Project, involving an updated cyclotron, key tool in nuclear physics research, is hoping to advance both science and regional relations. Washington-based science and environmental journalist Richard Blaustein wrote about the project for the winter issue of World Policy Journal. His report is headlined, Open Sesame, a Powerful Light Attracts Middle Eastern Scientists. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Richard Blasting, welcome to World Policy On Air. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Dr. Paolucci jokes that a synchrotron is the world's most expensive light bulb because it can produce the kind of light we see, but also much, much more. First, tell us about how many of them there are in the world and how many different types of radiation they can produce. The synchrotron light source. Uh, there are over 50 in the world, mostly in Europe and the United States, and there's a prominent center in Taiwan. Uh, I think uh, there's Japan, there definitely is, and uh, probably China too. And they come in what are considered three generations, and those are that defines the brilliance, the power of the synchrotron to sort of basically take light, focus it on objects or organisms or cells or even at the atomic level and and basically illuminate so that scientists can better understand structure and dynamics. Sesame is a third generation one and it basically provides a, a white light and depending upon your optical system attached to this uh, this synchrotron light in the case of Sesame it's circulating which are what most of them but not all of them are circulating electron beams um, in the case of Sesame, you'll, you'll have many different stations uh, with optical systems that will pick up the different wavelengths of light, which will allow, which are catered for different types of investigations. I gather it can range from, uh, from X-ray to, to ultraviolet, uh, and so different purposes. How is this radiation created? You accelerate an energy beam of electrons, approach the speed of light, although not attain that level, and just by natural phenomenon, it emits photons. So in the synchrotron light source, it's going around a circle, and it's primarily called the storage ring. That's the design for sesame. And right as this electron beam accelerates, the photon streams radiate at uh, different angles or primarily tangentially, and then you have uh, certain hutches and apertures from which you can catch that. So, for example, at Sesame, there is um, going to be an infrared beam, and in fact, they already have the microscope and the spectrometer, uh, different measuring devices up and running, which they're using a conventional infrared source, but an infrared beam will be emitted out, or basically a light beam, and then the optical system will capture the infrared wavelength. And from that, uh, right, you can ex 
explore the biosciences. Um, there's right now investigations going on at Sesame on cancer research. And with a conventional infrared beam going into an advanced microscope and spectrometer, and then when the, the, the uh, synchrotron is fully up and running, then I'm, I just was talking to a scientist there, you'll have a power of magnitude two or three times more. So we're talking 100 or 1,000 times stronger uh, light source. And that means finer details into the cells. Cancer research is clearly looking forward uh, to make progress in, in medical science. I gather also they can look at environmental issues, but I'm told that it's also a way of looking backwards. How does that work? You know, in Sesame, you're in the Middle East, so many folks are very excited about the possibility of this high-powered light source examining archaeological artifacts. And the great advantage is with this high-powered light, you can do it in such a way that even fragile objects are safe. You're just examining things in certain contexts of light that are non-intrusive. In the case, for example, there was a, a scroll from Pompeii that they applied the synchrotron light in Grenoble, and the scrolled up Pompeii manuscript or, or script was uh, they were fearful of doing any damage. They can keep it rolled up, and just with the advanced life, you can re recreate a, a, um, a text from it. So it's very, that's archaeology, heritage. That's one of the areas that this Sesame uh, project will have great ambitions and, and hopes for. That was just the embodiment of Abdus Salam's uh, advocacy, passionate advocacy, for science to be brought and nurtured in the developing world. He actually had a mentioning in another writing of a synchrotron source in the Middle East uh, a few years earlier, around 77 and 76. So Abdus Salam, a great world-class physicist, obviously Nobel Prize winner, and he, he made, played a major role uh, establishing a international physics center in Trieste, Italy, now named after him. And uh, his great passion was developing, uh, developing world science, uh, in addition to, of course, physics itself. And uh, he also had a great uh, sense of learning and wrote on uh, science in the Muslim world. And um, so this is, this is he's, he's very critical for the background context for advanced science, advanced physics, uh, in the developing world, and he also offered, uh, proffered a great specific in the mid-70s for synchrotron in the Middle East. Um, so we jump a bit to about the time of Oslo, where you had uh, an Israeli physicist. The Eliezer Oslo Peace Accords. Yeah, the Oslo Peace Accords. And you had some scientists starting to hope that they could uh, bolster the whole atmosphere with scientific collaboration. And you had the establishment of the Middle East Science Collaboration, which Abdus Salam endorsed before his death in 1996. Uh, obviously, as we know, the history of the 90s, it wasn't smooth going with Oslo, and uh, since then, of course, too. But somehow, uh, some of this, the, the, the whole culture of science collaboration kept moving forward, and in around 1998, this MESC forum 
met up with some scientists who were advisors to the Bessie project, which is in Germany, where they were retiring a synchrotron. So they had the equipment, the three basics, the microtron and what's called the synchrotron booster. And then the third is the storage ring where it really accelerates and hence can produce stronger light. And Herman Winnick and Gus Voss, uh, Herman Winnick at Stanford, Voss was with what was called DESI, another center in Germany, a uh, physics center, but also taught, I believe he taught at Harvard too. But they thought, let's take this to the Middle East or let's offer it. And they hooked up with this forum called MESC and they had a few prominent meetings in the late 90s, which was at, uh, the first one was at Torino because one of the organizers of MESC was Sergio Fubini, who was a physicist at the University of Torino uh, and a colleague of Eliezer Rabinovich of Israel. And so here you have this, this forum that began kind of in the Oslo atmosphere meeting up with sort of different advocacies or different sources of advocacy. And then it just sort of clicked. Yeah, we can take this equipment from Bessie and put a synchrotron in the Middle East where, of course, there's the brain drain problem. And, of course, uh, further in the background of their mind, of their thinking, no doubt, and even and not such in the background, was the great example of CERN, uh, the great particle accelerator famous for the Higgs boson a few discovery a few years ago, but many other uh, discoveries too. Uh, that was sort of modeled in large part on creating good relations among scientists in a broken Europe right after World War II. So they thought we need the capacity. Uh, it, it certainly is positive for scientists working across, across country boundaries to work together, plus physicists work on big projects together, and there's a culture of collaboration. So let's uh, transfer this, this uh, expensive equipment to the Middle East. So that's how it started, and then it got uh, endorsement from UNESCO, um, got, got support through like a memorandum of understanding with CERN, and it received important uh, United States support in the beginning. And then, uh, you know, there were some, it's very hard getting such a project going, but uh, uh, there was a site committee um, formed for Sesame. They chose the site of Alan um, Jordan. One of the stipulations which was that the country, the host country, would be able to sort of give it support with finances, but also um, they'd be good site for water, for uh, you know energy, for all sorts of the necessary providings. And Alan Jordan was, was chosen. And I'm also told recently that one of the reasons for Alon Jordan. It also would facilitate um, Palestinian support. It was a good central place. How much of the old equipment uh, has actually been used, leaving what new equipment to build, and how has that impacted the projected cost for the completion uh, this year? Well, that's a central question. And so the aspiration of Sesame was really to make it cutting edge. And I think it's fair to say in the narrative that as the designs were being drawn up and as, you know, construction plans were done, the uh, equipment of Bessie was not quite going to make it a third generation synchrotron. 
So you had these two, these three major parts, the microton, synchrotron booster, and the storage ring where it really accelerates the energy that is, and hence light is produced. And the uh, microton and the synchrotron booster were kept and refurbished. I just did a little research on it. Things, uh, there were things like in the nature of, you know, uh, for the synchrotron booster, uh, the magnet structure w is the same, but and I won't get too much into details. Things like the vacuum chamber, the power supply, the diagnostics and control center were replaced. So you had these two major parts that were still kept but refurbished. And then that that storage ring, the central part, the, the, um, the people participating just decided just keeping that as it is won't get, get it up to the cutting edge a synchrotron source that we're looking to the future to keep the scientists in the Middle East. So that's been replaced and that's what's being constructed right now. And that's what they're, the storage ring, they'll finish in the summer. They'll close it up, uh, you know, put all protective shielding around it, uh, power supplies, vacuum supplies, all sort of diagnostic equipment. And, and then uh, they'll, they'll do some trial runs and then they'll be ready for full commissioning of the synchrotron center uh, with an opening ceremony toward the latter part of 2016. How many scientists from how many countries are already at Sesame? How many are expected to be working there at full strength? First of all, there's a secretariat, which is really the at-site working group. And I think they have about 40 full-time people. But there's a lot of people rotating in and out and they have now a community of users, people trained to actually do experiments when it's up and running, of about 300. The point is that once it gets going, we're, we're looking at a, a large facility of you know, maybe over 1,000 users. How many countries are represented at this point, and what is the prospect going forward? There are observers, and there are people that are, or parties that help uh, get Sesame going, like the EU who has also contributed money. And then, but at, but at core is the members. And those are, uh, these are the countries, Bahrain, Cyprus, Egypt, Iran, Israel, Jordan, Pakistan, the Palestinian Authority, and Turkey. They are the members. So they're really the core, and they're requested to pay member fees and to help with both infrastructure and operating expenses and from them but not solely from them uh, the science scientists will come to use sesame what is the price tag and where is all the money supposed to come from the money is the big question as always with these uh, these projects for a phase 1a they call it with four beam lines and supporting infrastructure, they needed about 20.9 million, but they only have about 7.2 million, um, which is enough to get two big beam lines up for the end of the year, start the investigations going and get and have some infrastructure. But there's some things in the works that will might, might help. One is that a big uh, development is that um, the sanctions from Iran are lifted. 
So Iran has, a, has, I think, more than one scientist already involved in some cancer research there. And they're hoping for, that's the Sesame people, maybe that $5 million capital commitment from Iran will help. So Jordan has put an enormous amount of money in uh, for the infrastructure, for the building. Israel has paid up. They're expecting another uh, from its $5 million commitment, $1.2, I think, million soon from Israel. Iraq has paid full. So getting up to those four beam lines and getting a little security, that $5 million from Iran will help. But also really important and importantly will be, will the United States come around? Uh, the EU has given $11 million, And so if the United States could do some sort of matching, that will be a big boost in, in letting all sort of the operators and the leaders of Sesame just really start focusing on science. The U.S. contribution has been minimal so far. Tell us what it was and, and, the, and the reason that it's, uh, it's so limited because of a controversy over a United Nations agency that has a role. Talk about that. Right. I, I'm, I believe at the very early parts, there was like a, maybe like a half a million contribution from the U.S. government, something like that, which still makes a big difference. UNESCO and was called in to play a role with the organization assessment, such as letters of deposits. There was a controversy with UNESCO having recognized uh, Palestine as a state. Didn't, this didn't sit well with uh, United States legislators who cut off funding from UNESCO. So there was an association of Sesame with UNESCO, which, which hurt its uh, sort of... Uh, hurt the argument from going forward. But I think the argument has been made, and I'm told it's behind uh, the situation now, of, of sort of the linkage, because the Sesame is so independent. It's just a classic association like CERN was associated with UNESCO, and that the um, Sesame advocates in the United States or, or at Sesame themselves believe it's clarified and hoping that there'll be more support. There was, I think... Um, prominent visit by the U.S. ambassador to Jordan at Sesame in October. And there's a big champion in Congress with uh, Bill Foster, a representative in the House of Representatives, uh, who himself uh, is a physicist and spent 20 years at Fermilab, which is in Illinois. I think that's his district. So there's, there's a community of interest. And um, there's also the King of Jordan has an big advocacy of it. So it's, it's known there are different ways the United States might uh, offer some financial support. And, I'm, and I gather from my reporting that they're considering it, but it's, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Despite the block on major federal funding, you found there was support from some national labs and scientific societies in the United States. Right. There's... Um, I report in the World Policy Journal article about the a, a training program led by the American Physical Society, and um, that has trained, I think, 100 different scientists associated with SESME to sort of travel abroad to the meetings or get training uh, related to either being a user or a secretron technician. That's been a big help. There's actually act even advisory roles for um, scientists in the United States labs, in the technical committees, 
or the scientific committee. I don't think the scientific committee now, but there, there, there certainly was representation. But there is at the technical committee places like Argonne Labs, Slack, at Stanford. I think even the Berkeley Labs played a role or are playing a role. They have advanced knowledge of the optics or of synchrotron science, and they're actually offering assistance there too. And there's a hope that the lab participation, United States labs will, will move forward and expand too. Could only help. And and what do you hear from any of the scientists who are actually already working with some of this equipment? How are they feeling about this project, both the science and, and the, the sort of international relations aspect of it? Right. They're excited about both aspects uh, that you referred to in your question. Uh, this is the big year, 2016. They think that they're really on schedule to get this full commissioning going by the end of the year, if not even a little earlier. When I mean earlier, I mean October, uh, September instead of uh, November or December. So they're, they're looking at, they've had really sophisticated participation of different experts around the world in uh, design and in implementation. So they feel really good and optimistic. They, there is great enjoyment of working across boundaries, and they feel they're, the, the scientists I've talked to at Sesame uh, feel they're, they're just a part of this great big science tradition in physics, and what they're doing uh, really reflects that and will, will enhance capacities in the region and only helps with, um, with uh, good relations, creating a precedent. Richard Blaustein, thank you. Thanks, Dave. It was great talking to you. Richard Blaustein is a Washington-based science and environmental journalist. His article in the Witter issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, Open Sesame, a powerful light attracts Middle Eastern scientists. Also featured in the new WPJ Winter issue, Latin America on Life Support, you'll find articles about economic and social evolution in the region, defiance and despair in Venezuela, black sites on the Internet, and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the changing face of Cuba, as reported by former State Department Foreign Affairs Officer Amanda Mattingly. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal, at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.